Hey, I'm Justin Anderson, lead pastor at Icon Church. Thanks so much for joining us today, wherever you are to listen to or watch this message. We are in the middle of a series called A Rule for Life, Finding Peace in an Anxious World. And as we are recording these sermons live, we are in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, which is creating a lot of anxiety for people and we have never needed peace more. But no matter where you are or when you are engaging this content, we are always in need of peace. And God has provided a path to peace for us through spiritual disciplines. And that's what we're exploring during this series. So I encourage you uh, to go to iconchurch.org slash rule for life for more resources, more content, and more information. Hey Icon, Pastor Justin here. It is good to be with you today. Uh, we are nearing the end of our series, A Rule for Life, Finding Peace in an Anxious World. So if you're new with us and just joining this series, uh, you can go to iconchurch.org slash rule for life uh, for more resources, more information, and to catch up on the series. But the basic idea of it is this. For many generations, Christians have built what we call a rule of life. And it's simply orienting your life around a set of practices that intentionally shape and form you into the kind of person uh, that you were made to be. And namely, in this series, a, a person who experiences peace, right? Uh, I, I think peace is an elusive thing in any time in our lives, but even more so during this time where we are faced with a global pandemic and stay-at-home orders and all of the disruption that we have experienced. So we've been looking at certain practices that we can implement in our lives that might recapture some of the peace that we're made for. This week, we're looking at the rhythm of fasting and feasting. So we're calling it Peace Needs a Rhythm, right? Fasting is something that Christians have practiced for a long, long time. In the Old Testament, fasting was a really consistent practice. Uh, Jesus uh, practiced fasting. The disciples practiced fasting. All through church history, we have practiced fasting. In fact, John Wesley, the famous uh, Methodist reformer, says this. He goes, the man who never fasts is no more in the way to heaven than the man who never prays. Now, me and Wesley might think about this stuff a little bit differently, but here's the, the big idea, and I agree with it, is that the same way we would look at prayer as a formative practice that turns us into the kinds of people that would pursue God, so too does fasting. The difference is, while many of us probably pray or at least feel the need to pray or have prayed at some point in the last month, very few of us have probably fasted. In fact, I would argue out of all the practices that we are talking about in this series, my guess is that the smallest percentage of you have done fasting in the last, let's say, month or two months. And this is a, a real shame because fasting is a really powerful practice that has, uh, is really rooted in the scriptures in pretty meaningful ways. So I want to talk first about what fasting is, and then we'll talk about how fasting brings about peace, right? First of all, fasting is about food. Some of you who grew up in youth group have fasted from TV or you've fasted from social media or you've fasted from your girlfriend or your boyfriend, that's called a breakup, but whatever. Like, but I'll just be honest, that's not fasting. The Bible, when the Bible talks about fasting, it's always about food. 
It is never about anything else. The Bible actually has a word for the choice we make to not practice something else, and it's called abstaining, right? So we talk about abstaining from food sacrificed to idols. Uh, Paul talks about uh, husbands and wives abstaining from uh, intimacy for certain periods of time. There is a word for the, the abstention of other things, and it's abstaining. It's not fasting. When the Bible talks about fasting, it always talks about food. So the reason I make a point of that is because I think sometimes we think about fasting as um, what's the thing I want to eliminate from my life, right? And it becomes kind of a me-centered, how do I want to cultivate or curate my time? How do I want to curate my life in such a way as to become the kind of person that I want to be? And what are the individual obstacles to that? And let me remove that from my life for a period. And I, I'll say this, that's good. Like you should do that. You definitely should remove social media from your life for seasons. You definitely should remove your boyfriend from your life, probably indefinitely. But listen, that's not fasting. Fasting is a, a very particular practice that has very particular rootedness in the scriptures. Fasting is refraining from eating and or drinking, talk about that more, for set amounts of time in order to rightly order one's heart. Okay, I'm going to read that again. Fasting is refraining from eating and or drinking for set amounts of time in order to rightly order one's heart. John Piper calls fasting whole body longing for God. Now, some of you who are out there watching today don't long for God at all and let alone a whole body longing for God. And so I get that, and I'm glad you're here, and I'm glad you're listening to this. So maybe for you, consider what it would look like to long for peace and to see where that path takes you. If you truly longed with all of your being, a whole body longing for peace, see where that path takes you. And I would argue that if you follow that path to peace all the way down, you will in fact find God. Now. In the scriptures, there are three main categories of reasons why people fast. The first is after they have had experiences with God. So think about Moses on Mount Sinai, uh, Elijah on Mount Carmel, Jesus after his baptism, uh, and Paul and Barnabas after their sending. The Holy Spirit told all the disciples, set aside Paul and Barnabas for this particular mission. And after that moment of the Holy Spirit speaking to them, they fasted for a great length of time. So one, we fast as a result of experiences with God. Two, we see in the scriptures a, a witness of a fasting during times of tragedy or times of great need, great peril, right? So in Nehemiah chapter one, when Nehemiah hears that Jerusalem has fallen and is in disrepair, he fasts and calls people to fast. In Esther chapter four, when uh, Esther sees that the people of Israel, the Jewish people are in great danger of being wiped out, she calls them to fast, to ask the Lord to protect them. But by far the most common category for fasting in the Bible is what we, we might call a, a response to sin uh, through repentance. 
that we would acknowledge our sin by taking time to fast. And there's an interesting connection there that I want to talk about, but examples of this would be in Jonah chapter 3, when Jonah goes to Nineveh and calls the people to repentance. And they not only repent in their hearts of their sin, but then they call the entire city to fast. And this is a great example of the way in which we might respond with our bodies to an inner spiritual reality. Now, that might seem kind of strange to many of our modern ears, but biblically speaking, we human beings are physical and we are spiritual molded together in an inseparable kind of way. The, the physical realities of spiritual sin take a real toll on us, that the body can lead us into sin and our sin can, can actually affect our bodies. They are inseparable realities. And in fact, we see this play out the very beginning of the Christian story in Genesis chapter 3 when sin first enters into the world. So read with me. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read the first six verses of Genesis 3. It says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden or in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and it was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, I don't care how you read the first couple chapters of Genesis. If nothing else, this, these chapters tell us some really significant things about the way people work. And, and I think this chapter in particular, um, it really resonates with our common modern experience as crazy and distant and other as this might seem in, in a couple of different ways. First of all, the serpent tempts Eve in a, in a way that I think we can all recognize and kind of commiserate with, right? He presents a gap to her a need that she didn't know that she had. Adam and Eve are in the garden. They got fruit. They've got God. They're naked. They're not ashamed. That sounds fantastic. They are living their best lives in the garden of Eden. And then the serpent comes kind of slithering up and introduces a gap in their experience that they had not previously recognized, right? The serpent's lies were, you're not fill in the blank or you don't have fill in the blank. And, and I, I would say that those two temptations are still the core temptations uh, 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 that we face today. We're not in the garden. We don't primarily eat fruit. We're definitely not naked without shame. And there's not many talking serpents in our lives. But all of those scenarios in their modern manifestations are essentially telling us the same two things. You're not and you don't have. You're not something. You're, you're not something maybe even that you don't, didn't even desire until you were told you were not. And something that you don't have that you, maybe you've never even wanted, didn't even know existed, but now that you know it exists and you know you don't have it, now you want it. 
I think those two core temptations lie at the heart of our anxiety and our lack of peace. He created a gap, a lack that they didn't even recognize until they were told. And I wonder how much of our consumption is exactly the same. How much do we consume only after an ad told us what we weren't or what we didn't have? This is basically why Emily doesn't like sending me to Costco because I always come back with things that I didn't know we needed, she didn't know we needed, we definitely didn't need, neither of us never ever even knew existed, and oftentimes we have to create new space in our life just to use, right? But I'm walking down the aisles thinking like, what do I need? What's here? What could I have, right? This is the, the central temptation, I think, of something like Instagram. I see things on Instagram that I go, oh, I, I didn't know I had to do that. I see pastor's Instagram uh, stuff and I go, oh, I didn't know I had to be that kind of guy. I didn't know I had to do those kinds of things. I didn't, need, I didn't know I had to dress that way. I didn't know I had to talk that way or to be able to sing that way or to be able to look that good or dance that well. That was not in the job description, right? I mean, TikTok, this is my worst nightmare. Now I need uh, coordinated family dance routines. Who knew? That's not what I signed up for. And so it creates this gap where I go, well, shoot, we'd better start practicing, right? I didn't know I had to do that. This, this need that I never knew I had, this, this desire, this gap that never existed in my consciousness is all of a sudden there. Satan introduces that gap. And here's, here's the thing, the solution to the gap, the thing that would fill that gap was not God. And it was not them. It was something outside of themselves that Satan is going, if you had that, then you'd be fine. You aren't, but you could be if you had this. You don't have, but you could if you tried this. This is the temptation. Now, Adam and Eve succumbed to that temptation. They took of the fruit as Satan basically said to them, hey, you got a lot of good stuff going on here, but you're not God right? You're not wise. You don't know the difference between good and evil. And guess what? That was true. Why? Because they'd never experienced evil. Think about the core of that temptation that Satan comes and the serpent comes to them and says, listen, you don't know good and evil. And they're like, you know what? You're right. All we know is good. And because that seemed like a gap in their intelligence, a gap in their experience, a gap in their wisdom, a gap in their selfhood, they actually stepped into that. They stepped into evil. They didn't know evil, but they wanted it because it was something they didn't yet have. This is the core of our temptation. Now, once they took the fruit and ate, did that solve the problem? Not at all. It got worse. Read in verse 7. It says, then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So let's just track this story, right? They are uh, in the garden. They've got each other. Remember uh, a couple weeks ago, we talked about when Adam saw Eve, he broke into song. This is not what normal men do. She must've been fantastic, right? So he's singing. They're in the garden. There's no evil. They're, they're, they got a one-on-one -on -one time with Jesus every day. And, and yet they feel this gap. Now they eat of the fruit. And what happens? Fear. 
They're running away from God. They're aware of their nakedness in a way that brings shame now. And now, and now they're hiding from him. He says, I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you, I just love that. that, that that's such a, like a father to a kid uh, kind of line. I remember when each of my children realized they were naked and they call it nakey. They still do. And I'm holding on to that. I want my daughter at her high school graduation to say nakey. Actually, maybe not at her graduation. That's probably poor context, but I love that. Okay. So God goes, who told you you were naked? Right? Like that, you didn't know that. That's just being, that's just what is. And now that's been changed. He says, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman, the woman who, by the way, God, you gave to be with me. I mean, this is, this is ballsy, right? On Adam's part. This is pretty big. He's not only blaming Eve, but now he's like, hey, by the way, this woman who you gave me, who was, you know, I liked her, but she's the one who's to blame. And, you know, thanks a lot. You, you set me up on this blind date, okay? She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent. The serpent deceived me and, and I ate. So we've got fear. We've got shame. We've got uh, hiding. We've got relational strife. We've got blame. That's what comes, right? So let, let's get back to fasting, right? The original story about how sin and break, brokenness enter the world is this, that a gap emerged tempted to us by Satan, tempted to us uh, from, from outside of ourselves that said, who are you and what do you have? In other words, you aren't and you don't have. And the move that Adam and Eve were tempted to make was to act outside of themselves, to reach outside of themselves for a thing, for something that would fill a gap that they previously didn't even know existed. That's the core temptation. That when we do feel a gap, that instead of us going to God to fill that gap, we go to other things. We go to things outside of ourselves and outside of God. We go to God's created things to fill the gaps that we feel in our heart. That is the core of how sin has entered the world and how sin continues to enter into our lives. And so this rhythm of fasting and feasting is the regular practice of eliminating a core thing from our lives that we are tempted to depend on to bring us that sense of identity, that sense of security, that sense of satisfaction, to answer the question, who am I and what do I have? It is intentionally removing that thing. Now, I don't wanna press the metaphor too far, but it does maybe mean something that this core original sin was around food, okay? So I don't think that all of us necessarily are always reaching to food to satisfy this inner gap that we have. But I will say that God has identified that the, at the core of who we are, this physical, spiritual connection, that the removal of sustenance, the removal of food from our lives has a unique power to awaken us to our need. It has a unique power to awaken us to all of the things that we are reaching for to fill that gap. So for some of us, food is absolutely that thing. And we eat for comfort or we drink to dull the pain. 
But for many others of us, it's other things. It's technology or it's sex or it's career or it's whatever. And yet when we fast from food, it gives us this heightened sense of, of what it is that we lean on and what it is that we actually need. It, it, it kind of speaks to that core synthesis of body and soul in a way that really nothing else can. Because, I mean, you, you, you remove Instagram from your life, you're just going to fill it up with something else. It, you, don't, you don't feel it. There's something about fasting that you feel that is a constant physical reminder of a greater spiritual reality about all the things that we, we reach out to to fill that gap. So four really practical ways in which fasting fights anxiety and can bring peace into our lives. First, it produces mastery over ourselves through self-discipline. It flexes a muscle that we don't often flex, the muscle of self-discipline. And that gives us strength to abstain in other areas of life as well, the other things that we might reach to in times of stress. And so this idea of self-denial is, is extremely countercultural in a world that tells us that we should basically bend to our every whim and give our desires anything that they want, right? Like, very few things in our world are telling us to abstain or to have self-discipline. And so fasting cuts against the grain of everything else around us and says, no, this is a muscle you need to flex because if you can't flex it around food, you're not going to be able to flex it around career, workaholism, other identity issues, sex, money, any of it. Okay. So it's a, it's a muscle that the Bible gives us to, to flex and to work so that we're strong in other areas. Number two, Fasting and feasting enables us to enjoy what we have and to be thankful for it. It causes us to pay attention to what we've been given rather than just mindlessly consuming it, right? So when you fast, here's a, a, just a, a little heads up, you'll feel hungry and that will feel bad at first and then you'll never get used to it. You'll just keep feeling hungry and that's the point because here's the deal. We feel lack. We don't feel provision, right? Because God's providing for us all the time. It's the same thing with pain, right? You don't feel when you feel good, right? You just, you get up out of bed and nothing, you don't notice it. You just go on without your day. Very few of us get up out of bed and go, whoa, hey, no pain. Thank you, Jesus, for the no pain. No, we get up, we don't notice it, we move on. The only time we feel a lack of pain is after a season of pain. Okay. We feel pain, we feel lack, and it reminds us then to be aware of the ways in which we consume and the ways in which we, we kind of work throughout our lives. So on two separate occasions, I have fasted uh, for 40 days. The first 40 days of my relationship with Emily, actually our dating relationship, which was, you know, looking back, a poor choice, a little weird, a little, of a, a little intense way to start a relationship. Uh, side note, saved me a bunch of money on dates, but nonetheless, a little weird. But I, we, we spent 40 days, no food, uh, and, and just like, just drinks is, is all I did, and just like fruit juices and water and stuff like that. That first meal I had, was I, was I was poor, I wasn't a college kid, but I was close and I was as poor as a college kid. And so that first meal was at Denny's, 
right? And it was like, we went at midnight. I, you know, this wasn't, I wasn't going to be over spiritual about this thing. When the fast was over, it was 12.01, the fork was at my mouth, right? And I'm eating eggs from Denny's at midnight. And that first taste of eggs was like the most glorious thing I'd ever tasted. And I thought, hmm, do I taste a hint of rosemary in these eggs? And the answer is no, it was Denny's. It was a hint of floor probably, right? Like the, but, but I had such an appreciation for that first bite of eggs that I never would have had before, right? So when we take things away and then reintroduce them through feasting, right? That rhythm of fasting and feasting to take away so that we can then enjoy, we actually have the ability to enjoy it again rather than just consume mindlessly. Number three, hunger reminds us of our frailty and dependence. And this is good. You are not self-sufficient and you were never meant to be. Never, right? I actually, I wonder how much of our anxiety comes from misplaced responsibility. Let me say that again. How much of our anxiety comes from misplaced responsibility? Where we feel anxious and stressed out because we can't manage a world we were never meant to manage. And so because we take on more ownership than we should and essentially displace God in our lives, we feel then stress that we can't live up to it. And I'm going to tell you now, you can't live up to it. You're not strong enough. You're not efficient enough. You're not good enough. And that's okay. So there's a sense in which when we start to feel hungry and we feel weak as a result of our hunger, and then that reminds us of our frailty and dependence, that's a good thing because maybe that starts to trickle into other areas of your life and causes you to actually pray instead of try to own more. Number four, it reminds us, fasting and feasting reminds us that man doesn't live on bread alone. Matthew chapter four, one through four says this, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit. This is right after his baptism. I mentioned before that uh, after experiences with God, people often fast and Jesus was no exception. So Jesus uh, has his baptism and then it says, he was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Go figure, the most obvious verse in the Bible. The tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, Jesus says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, right? So Satan comes to Jesus thinking he is at his weakest when he is actually at his moment of greatest strength. After 40 days of praying and fasting in the wilderness, Satan picked the exact wrong time to confront Jesus and tempt him. And he thinks that he's going to be able to get to him through his stomach and go, you must be hungry. Why don't you just make these rocks into loaves of bread? And Jesus goes, listen, you don't understand this at all, do you? I'm stronger than I've ever been because I have feasted on the word of God for the last 40 days. Uh, yes, I, I need food and I'm going to go eat here in a minute. But listen, I don't have to have food alone. I need the presence of God. I need the word of God. The things we reach for in this world around us will never satisfy us the way that the presence of God, the word of God will. So yeah, you need food. That's why it's a rhythm. It's not fasting forever. It's not being an ascetic in a cave. It's a, it's a rhythm of fasting 
recognizing our need for something more than just food or more than what this creation can give us. But then it is feasting and being thankful again for the provision of God. And all of this reminds me of something that C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity. One of the greatest, most famous chapters, his chapter on hope at the end of the book, says this. And this is going to be a long quote, but it's C.S. Lewis, so I won't apologize. He says this about, he's talking about heaven and the hope of heaven. He says, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I am not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. Now, there are two wrong ways of dealing with this and one right way. And he's going to outline what those two wrong ways and the one right way is. But just to expand on his metaphor a little bit, there's, there's something and, and probably multiple somethings that each of us long for and we reach for and we go, that's the thing that's going to finally be the thing that brings the satisfaction that I desire. That's the object of my longing. And it might be your career. It might be the money that your career brings. It might be a spouse or potential spouse or a place of that you'll live or a particular house or city or something. There's something or things that you are reaching for. And Lewis goes, that, that desire that's within you that caused you to reach in the first place, no matter how good your marriage, no matter how good your job, no matter how much money, it will dissolve like sand through your fingers once you finally grasp at it. And this is an experience we've all had. There was, for all of us, a thing that we reached for that failed us. And so we reached again and again and again, hoping that the next thing is the thing that the last thing wasn't, right? And he says there's two wrong ways to respond to this in one right. Here's what he says. The first is the fool's way. He says the fool puts the blame on the things themselves. He goes on all his life thinking that if he only tried another woman, or went for a more expensive holiday, or whatever it is, then this time he really would catch the mysterious something we are all after. Most of the bored, discontented, rich people in the world are of this type. They spend their whole lives trotting from woman to woman, from continent to continent, from hobby to hobby, always thinking that the latest is the real thing at last, and always disappointed. The second is the way of the disillusioned, sensible man, or what I would call the secularist. He soon decides that this whole thing was moonshine. Of course, he says, one feels like that when they're young, but by the time you get to my age, you've given up chasing the rainbow's end. And so he settles down and learns not to expect too much and represses the part of himself which used, as he would say, to cry for the moon. This is, of course, a much better way than the first. It makes a man much happier and less of a nuisance to society. It tends to make him a bit of a prig, though, on the whole, and he, but he rubs along fairly comfortably. It would be the best line we could take if, if man did not live forever. But supposing infinite happiness really is there waiting for us, supposing one really can reach the rainbow's end, 
In that case, it would be a pity to find out too late that by our supposed common sense, we had stifled in ourselves the faculty of enjoying it. Now, Lewis is going to argue that the Christian way is the last way, and it's the one right way. It's the one way that actually brings hope of experience, the kind of satisfaction that we were made for, that Adam and Eve had in the garden before the temptation. And we'll end with this. The Christian way, or the way of peace. The Christian says creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or be thankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. And there in that last line, he captures the rhythm of fasting and feasting. That on the one hand, that we, we should feast, that we should be thankful for the good creation that God has given us and the ways in which it can satisfy and the ways in which it suggests greater satisfaction. But we also have to have that valley of fasting in order to recognize that they can't ultimately satisfy. They can only hint at, to, to, to kind of quench our hunger for a day, but then that hunger will come back again tomorrow. Fasting acknowledges the incompleteness, and feasting communicates thankfulness for the ways in which God has and will continue to care for us. And in this sense, we are in the great fast now, tasting the blessing of creation only in part. And the great feast is yet to come when we taste fully of God's creation as it was meant to be experienced. So we say this all the time here. Begin where you are and take the next step. This week, I'm going to fast. And I'm going to tell you about it because I want to invite you to join me. So every day, starting Monday, um, all the way through Sunday, I'm going to fast all day long and then feast with my family for dinner each night. I want to be with my family and be thankful for the food that God has provided, be thankful for the family that he's provided, the people that I can laugh with and celebrate with. And so I would encourage you, if you can do that with me, that would be fantastic. I want to hear stories of how that's gone. But if that's something you can't do for physical reasons, if it's something you can't do for other life reasons, I get it. But figure out a way in which you can fast this week. Fast from food specifically. You can abstain from other things, but fast from food to be reminded that God is your provider, that God is the source of your peace, that there is nothing that we can reach for that will bring the peace that we long for and, and really that we were made for. We're not grasping for something that's not out there, but we're grasping at the wrong things for something we were made for. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so grateful for your creation. We're grateful for the ways that you've provided for us, the ways that you care for us. God, I, I'm sorry 
for all of the ways in which I am not aware of your constant provision because I just don't notice it. It doesn't hurt, so I don't feel it. I don't feel the absence of pain. I only feel the pain, so I feel lack, but I don't feel provision, and I'm sorry for that because I haven't rightly acknowledged the ways in which you have cared for me, given me breath after breath after breath. So God, I pray this week that as we fast together, that we would be reminded not only of our frailty, not only of our need for you, not only of your provision for us, but Lord, we would be reminded that you will always provide. And that what we need most of all, that we don't live on bread alone, we don't live on people alone, we don't live on all of the things around us, but we need you at the core of it all. And in fact, when we get you, it makes all the rest of it make sense. So God, this week, give us you through our fasting. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching into a time of response to reflect on and respond to the work of the Spirit. While we recognize it's hard to capture that in a podcast, we'd still encourage you to take a moment. Consider what the Spirit might be saying to you in response to what you heard. For more resources and details about how to join us on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. As we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.